Um, I just want to welcome those of you guys watching online from coast to coast and across the fruited plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God should put it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, I want to take a second and pray for us right now. We love you, God. We love you. Thank you that we can be here. We can be here with one another, that we can be here with one another, praying with one another, that we can be here with one another, praying and singing with one another. And now, Lord, to be able uh, to hear your word uh, expounded upon and preached. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Help me as I preach today. Keep me from error. Help me to say only what you would like me to say. Free us from distraction right now. Free us from distraction, free us from uh, anxious thoughts that we might have, and just give us us an attention span right now to to listen, to learn, to grow, to be encouraged, to be convicted, whatever whatever you want to do. Lord, we think of our our president. We pray for uh, wisdom uh, for him. We pray for a special grace and kindness. Uh, We pray for his health, uh, his mental faculties. Guide him and instruct him, Lord. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, coast guardsmen, those serving at home, abroad, we pray for their safety, their protection. And we pray, Lord, for their salvation. We know so many of them don't know you. Lord, for the persecuted church, Leah Sherabu, Pastor Yusuf, Pastor Wang, Pastor John, the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, the Christians in Afghanistan, the Christians in Somalia and Eritrea and the South Sudan and Nigeria, for the Christians in Russia and Ukraine, Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. For Vladimir Putin, we pray for his salvation and we also pray that you would confuse and frustrate his plans. We pray that the church, the global church, especially in some of those places that we just mentioned, God, that it would be a a beacon of hope shining brightly, a city on a hill. God, help them. Help them, Lee. Jesus, we, we, we need you, God. And I pray that you'd help us today. Help us today, Lord, to hear from you. Guide my speech, guide my words. Keep me from error. We pray this in your name, amen. So, we're not in John's gospel. Last time I preached, two weeks ago, we were in John's gospel. We're not in John's gospel today. We're taking a pause. I, I knew we would have, and be missing a lot of people, so my plan is to be in John's Gospel next week for part two. This is a sermon that I think I last preached in May of 2021. Um, we're going to go through Psalm 84 together, verse by verse. And Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, as he was referred to, who preached in London in the 19th century, he gave this particular psalm, Psalm 84, a nickname. He called it the Pearl of the Psalms. He called it the sweetest of all the Psalms. So it'll become 
pretty evident once we get going that this is not a song of triumph. Psalm 84 is a cry of desperation. Here's the bottom line up front. You're like, what's Psalm 84 about? I'm going to tell you, like in like one or two sentences. The psalmist really wants to be in Jerusalem, worshiping at the temple in the presence of God with the people of God. He wants to be there so badly, and yet for some unknown reason, he can't be there. He is unable to embark on this pilgrimage. And it becomes very clear that the psalmist is not where he wants to be. And some of you, I think, can relate with that. He's not where he wants to be. Life's circumstances have conspired against him. That's what Psalm 84 is about. But let's squeeze it a little bit harder. Expository style. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. How, do, how lovely is your dwelling place. He uses the word lovely. And that word lovely, it could be a little misleading in our modern day use of the word and context of the word. And that's because the word lovely, it can refer to something or someone who is actually beloved, not just lovely. This would be in contrast to the person who might use the word or a variation of it to comment on the beauty or the design of someone or something. In other words, this verse is capturing the attitude of the psalmist. You see, he's not just saying, wow, you look good. You're lovely to gaze at. You're easy on my eyes. It's so much more than that. For the psalmist, he loves to be there. He loves to spend time there. He loves to hang out there with God and the people of God. And then, verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My, my heart and flesh, they sing for joy to the living God. Speaking of courts, the average home at this time, it, it would have a courtyard where people ate and... They talked and they worked, and this is where he wants to be, but he can't be there right now. And, and to be clear on this idea of being in the court, being in the courtyard, but not in the temple proper, it didn't mean that they weren't somehow in God's presence, because the courtyard of someone's home is where you'd welcome visitors. He, he understands, the psalmist does, that the court is actually an extension of God's home. And I think in this verse, you really begin to feel this sort of desperation on the part of the psalmist, who's just really consumed by this feeling. He's consumed by this longing just to be with God in this place. Uh, there's no teetering. I mean, you read the verse... Not, not to mention the whole chapter. And there's no, there's no wavering. There's no going back and forth. There's no, well, you know, it would be really nice to go to Disney, but I'd also settle for Bush Gardens. There's no like, well, i date her, but if her roommates were available, I suppose that could work too. Okay? The, like, for, for the psalmist, the, there, there, there is none of that. This is everything he wants. My heart, my flesh, in other words, my whole being, every single part of me, to be clear, once again, he's not like, I want to be there, but I'd also, you know, it'd be nice to be somewhere else. Nope, not in this situation. For the psalmist, he is just so excited. 
at the prospect of not merely being in this place, but also of meeting with this person, the living God. And then in verse 3, he says, even, even the sparrow finds a home and a, and, a, and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. He wants to be there so badly that he's even jealous of the birds who get to nest in the temple rafters. Okay? That, that's how bad he wants to be there. He's not like, well, I'll just watch online or I'll just pop in as long as I don't have anything else going on at 4 p.m. Yeah, I guess that works. Let's go. He wants to be there. Those lucky birds. <laughs> He's jealous of the birds. And then verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. We already mentioned the birds of verse 3. Now he mentions other people here in verse 4. Other people who get to dwell there in the house of God. Those who get to regularly hang out there. He calls them blessed. That is, they're the lucky ones who get to experience the safety, the protection that arise from living near their protector. The, the birds, and they get to hang out there, yeah, but unlike the pilgrim, unlike the traveler who comes to Jerusalem for the festival, but then he has to go back home, the people here in verse 4, these would be like the priests, the Levites, who would spend a considerable amount of time at the temple, at the temple complex, and, and by extension, just other people, like local people living there in Jerusalem who could spend every day there if they wanted to. He says they are truly blessed, ever singing your praise. And as verse 4 concludes, here's the idea of them ever singing their praise, ever singing his praise. They can do it again tomorrow if they want to. They're so blessed. They can do it tomorrow, and then they can do it the day after, and they can do it the day after that. I um, remember a young girl who came with tears in her eyes back in, back in August. And she shared with me and Diana, she shared with me and Diana how much she loved the local church, specifically this church. And she said, I didn't realize it until I left for the summer and I didn't have it any longer, how much I not only needed it and loved it, but how much I took it for granted. You see, it's easy to take things for granted and then you move away or something happens in your life that is preventing you from being with God and his people. This, this is a window into how the psalmist is feeling right now. And he says in verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 5 kicks off with this, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. I mean, can you think of a contrast to, to verse 5? Of course you can, right? I mean, you don't have to look very far because the world is constantly telling you to look within yourself, to study the compass of your heart, to follow wherever your passion leads. You do you, we hear. You live your truth. Psalm 84 has no patience for such nonsense. See, see, true joy and true happiness, it insists 
is not having an internal compass that says, follow me, but one that says, follow God like the psalmist. And and so the, the question becomes, in which direction do the highways of your heart run? And I get it, because maybe you're not in the place where you want to be right now. Okay, the psalmist gets that. But here's another thing to think about, even to ask. Why am I not there? This question, in what direction do the highways of my heart run, is an important one. Because one has to acknowledge, based on this verse, that the reason you might not be where you want to be today is because you've gone off course. And your heart's not anchored on God. It's anchored on something else. It's possibly going in the wrong direction. Speaking of the wrong direction, there's a story from Hope Church in Illinois. Um, that's a United Methodist Church. They made the, the news last year because uh, they had affirmed their first openly gay drag queen for church ministry, Ms. with a Z, Pentecost. Ms. Pentecost. See, it's a play on Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, Pentecost, Pentecost. Yeah, that's, that's what was going on. Uh, Ms. Pentecost, Isaac Simmons, age 23 at the time, uh, got to come and preach the sermon during what they called Drag Sunday. And everybody celebrated and they thought, oh, what a wonderful, great thing. That's what the world says. Live your truth. Follow your heart. All the while, the psalmist makes it very clear that the right path is the person whose heart follows the highway to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the city of God, to God himself. And the idea is this person who walks with God, the person who keeps their eyes on God, the person who is anchored on God, that person who is blessed. That is the person who receives strength from God, especially in situations where we are weak, when we need it. Dare I even say when we find ourselves in places in life that we don't want to be. And they go, verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, The early rain also covers it with pools. The Valley of Baca was apparently this waterless place that would become a place of springs when the rains finally came. And so if you imagine or think about these travelers, these pilgrims making their way, coming to Jerusalem, probably September, October, the land they would have been coming through, it would have been withered, it would have been dried, Uh, I mean not much moisture at all in the area, and yet they, they, they come. Why? Because they want to be there. They, they don't say, well, it's not a good time. It's too dry. The land is withered. It doesn't really work with my schedule. No way. They come. They come, and they come with great expectation that God's going to do something that God will grant the gift of rain, that God will provide, and the landscape will be transformed, not because anything necessarily is going to grow immediately, but because plowing and sowing will become possible. 
so many people come to God with zero to little expectations that he's going to do anything at all in their lives. Especially Baptists, they're the worst. I'm a good Baptist, you should know that. It's true. So, so many people come to God with zero or little expectation that he's going to do anything at all in their lives. When they come on Sundays, or Tuesdays, to small group, when they pray, when they read their Bible, not the psalmist. Not at all. The psalmist comes with great expectations that God is on the move, that God is working, even if it can't be seen. And it would appear that not only is the psalmist in need of God's strength, verse 5, but that they're also dealing with anxiety. Anxiety about whether the rains will come as fall approaches in the midst of this very, very dry and withered, barren land at this point on the calendar. And that's significant because the rain's coming. That's how you cash your paycheck. The rains don't come, you don't cash your paycheck. The rains don't come, you don't have any money. The idea is as the people prioritize their time with God in the context, their pilgrimage to Zion, their worship, their prayer, that they find the blessing of rain. Not necessarily while they're on their journey, not necessarily when they are in Jerusalem, maybe not even for a while, but hopefully not too long after they get home. God gives them what they need. And and this is, is the picture of the pools in verse 6, conveying this idea and are the result of the rains. It is the culmination of the hope that the psalmist expresses that God will come through. And then it says in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. They go. And for Israel, this would be something that would be done three times a year. Three times a year, according to Exodus chapter 23, verse 17. Three times a year, they would go, they would make these journeys, these pilgrimages during the festivals to Zion, to Jerusalem. And and the psalmist describes this journey when when they're able to walk around the strong places or the ramparts there in, in Jerusalem and in doing so. And it reminds the people of God of all the great deeds of God in looking after the city of God, reminding them of the goodness of God and their security and safety. They're encouraged and they're strengthened when they go. When they go. And then, verse 8 and 9, I'll read them together in conjunction. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer, God. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. You know, what's interesting uh, about verses 8 and 9 here is this, this actually may have been one of their regular prayers the people would pray during their journey to the festival. If you come here every Sunday, we have regular prayers that are prayed from this pulpit. Right? These might have been some of their regular prayers, verses 8 and 9, that are prayed while they are making that journey to the festival. And in this prayer, we hear this echo, this appeal to God that he should, he should listen to the worshiper's plea. The first thing the psalmist does, he wants to get God's attention. He wants to get his attention. Hear my prayer. 
God, listen to me. And then there's this reference to the God of Jacob. You saw that? And that is emphasizing this personal relationship between Yahweh and Israel. In fact, this is actually the basis for the individual's plea. Essentially, all the psalmist is asking for is attention. For the psalmist, he believes that when God looks down from the heavens, when he sees what's happening on earth, appropriate action will surely follow. And then in verse 9, we have this reference to our shield. Our shield. You see that in verse 9? And in the Psalms, usually a reference to our shield, usually that would be understood as God, as it will be in verse 11. But it can also apply to human leaders, especially when you see your anointed appearing at the end of the line in conjunction with our shield, forming this sort of parallel between the two, most likely making a reference to the king. And so in the middle of verse 9, he says, look on the face of your anointed. Look on the face of your anointed. What, What he's asking for is that God would look favorably on the king to hear the king's prayer, to give grace to the king. And some of you are like, I don't like the king. Some of you are. I don't like the king. I didn't vote for the king. I understand. I feel the same way. But the psalmist sees the king's fate linked with the people's fate. In other words, it's a good thing for the king to be successful. Because if he's not, that has negative consequences for the people. And in case you don't think that's true, just look at the inflation report that came out last week. That's all you have to do. So this prayer for the king is indirectly a prayer for the worshiper. And then verse 10, it says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We should sing that in a few minutes. We should do that. Three times a year they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That's if you can make all three festivals. And so the truth is, even if you were to make all three of the festivals in Jerusalem, you can only spend, I mean, so many days there at the temple proper and in the courtyards at the complex in Jerusalem each year compared to the hundreds of days that have to be spent at home. That's what prompts the psalmist to say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper because the doorkeeper, at least they get to be there every day. In other words, the pilgrim traveler, he loves, he loves being there. He loves spending time there. It is a wonderful, refreshing, encouraging time. It means so much to him. That's what he's saying in verse 10. For the Lord God, verse 11. He is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The psalmist speaks of God as a son. That's a little unusual because the son, it's not always portrayed in a positive image because it has lethal force. Not to mention that the son was also a Babylonian and Egyptian deity. And yet the worshiper, he's aware of being in a very vulnerable situation and position as it relates to other people. And this will be especially so when dwelling among the tents of wickedness that he has referenced in verse 10. The idea 
is that when we do come to God, we come as people who walk, who should walk with integrity, rather than just going along with the crowd, rather than just going along with the culture, or as the psalmist would say, dwelling in the tents of wickedness from the previous verse, verse 10, among whom we live when we walk the right way, when we walk uprightly, as verse 11 says. Well, man, we're, we're encouraged. We're encouraged by the promises of verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing to see withhold. People who make this journey to Zion, to the city of God, believers, we need to be people who walk rightly in our everyday lives. We do. That being said, the, the psalmist knows that, he knows that no one's blameless or sinless. And yet, it is a reminder that God's people are to be different. They're to be different than the world among whom we live. That's, that's what he's saying here. We live in a world that despises and hates the things of God. This is the reference he makes in verse 10. The tense of wickedness. I mean, there's this huge link between verses 10 and 11. Huge link. We live among the tents of wickedness. We live among people who don't walk uprightly. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be what right looks like, even though most of the world isn't and doesn't care about walking uprightly. And then verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. This person, in verse 12, is characterized by trusting God, which is the attitude expressed in this chapter. All right, going back to questions about the uncertainty of, is it going to rain? It's September. It's September 15th. It's the last day in September. It's October. It still hasn't rained yet. Is it going to rain? Because if it doesn't rain, I'm not going to have any money. Where's my money going to be? That's verse 6. And the vulnerability of living among the world, the faithless, the godless culture of verse 10. In effect, the last line here, it says, it is great fortune for the person who joins in the psalm and means it. Throughout Psalm 84, the major focus has been the temple. It's been the focus. He wants to be there at the temple. He's unable to go. He is unable to make the trip. He is unable to be with the people of God. And yet, this same idea can be found and expressed when the people of God meet today on Sundays or on Tuesdays for a small group. There's this sort of retreat, this refrain, this pause as believers meet together as the living stones of the temple, as 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 would say, who, who love being in God's presence, who love singing together, who love reciting scripture together, who love studying the Bible together and praying together and exhorting one another together and stirring up one another to love and good works together. In other words, this place and this time and this very hour is better when the church gathers together than all the hundreds of hours during the week when we're not together. But what happens? We, we have to go back. Because the reality is, as verse 10 points out, we live among non-Christians, the tents of wickedness. That, that, that's our calling. 
living in an unbelieving world which operates on a radically different set of principles. Whether it's drag time story hour at your public library or drag queen Sunday and Ms. Pentecost is preaching the sermon at Hope Church in Illinois. See, we like the psalmist might like to escape the world and, and, and just, just live in the bliss of Christian company all the time. But that's just not always an option. And so the psalmist believes God's protection and blessing will ultimately be found looking forward to the next meeting with God in the company of God's people. And so we commit ourselves. We commit ourselves to walking in the world, or verse 10 would say, dwelling in the tents of wickedness. Not where we want to be, all the while yearning to be somewhere else. But what's really, really amazing throughout Psalm 84, over and over again, in this psalm, the psalmist speaks of blessings. I don't know if you caught that, but in verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, speaks of blessings. And yet, that, that seems kind of strange because we all know the psalmist is not where he wants to be. It's like, why are you talking about all this blessing talk if you're not where you want to be? And what becomes even more interesting in our modern context is when we speak this way. Like, if you were to search, like if you were to search right now, don't do it, but if you were to search the hashtag blessed on Instagram, 146 million results would pop up. And most of those posts would have this common theme with an underlying message that says, hey everyone, look at my great life. Hashtag blessed. But therein lies the difference between our two worlds. A difference that sometimes we forget when we find ourselves longing to be somewhere else. The psalmist is not where he wants to be in life. And yet he speaks of how blessed are the people of God who love God. You know what's interesting? If you go to the New Testament, there's 112 references to being blessed. Do you know how many of those 112 references in the New Testament focus on material things? Zero. Zero. You say, that's odd. No. No. Because the good life is not about having everything you wanted. It's about having God. Even if it's in the midst of nothing that you wanted. Even if it's in the midst of not being where you want to be at this exact moment. And so I'm reminded of a, a story about C.S. Lewis. It's 1956. C.S. Lewis is corresponding with a woman. And this particular woman is just struggling with worry. Worry that she wouldn't have the ability to endure if this or if this or if this other thing occurred. And at one point, Lewis just simply wrote, and I quote, Remember, one is given strength to bear what happens, not the 101 different things that might happen. End quote. And when will the strength that you need arrive? I just go back to verses 5 and 6. Remember the traveler who's on the journey? Remember, he's coming September, October. It's dry, it's dusty, the, the land is withered. Remember how everything is. Remember the desperate need for the rains to come. When will the rains come? When will the strength that you need arrive? And the answer is, just in time. Just in time. You know, a little, uh, 
over a decade before Lewis's letter, there was a Dutch Christian named Cory Ten Boom, barely holding on in a Nazi concentration camp. And in her classic autobiography years later, she reflected on the timing, the timing of God's provision. By way of illustration, she recounted her own anxiety as a six-year-old girl. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. God will not be rushed. Spiritual growth can't be microwaved. And of course, for the Christian, the temple looks different than it did for the psalmist. Thousand years after Psalm 84 was written, there's a guy who shows up in Jerusalem, begins saying some pretty crazy things like, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jewish leaders scoff. They're like, what? No! 46 years it took to build this temple? And you think you can raise it up in three days? Of course, this guy was referring to his body, soon to be destroyed by crucifixion, then raised to resurrected life. You see, what the psalmist so longed for was just a precursor to the true meeting place between God and men, that is the man Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself today, like the psalmist, wishing you were somewhere else, wishing you were in a different place in your life, understand that the Christian life is a long an arduous journey, one trusting step at a time in the midst of circumstantial uncertainty and anxiety. But here's the good news. For those who walk uprightly, for those who traverse the highways of God, for those who trust in God, He is our Son and our shield, and His provision for us is never late. It arrives precisely when we need it. So as the team comes, I want to pray. God, I'm sure many of us can relate to the psalmist with the circumstances of life, with the chapter that we're in, maybe not wanting to be there. God, I thank you to see an example of somewhere else Someone else in the Bible who's not where he wants to be in life. And Lord, while our hearts are encouraged to know that your provision for us is never late, it, it arrives precisely when we need it. Lord, may, may we remember that sometimes we're not where we want to be because we veered off course. At the end of the day, the psalmist wants to be with you. He wants to be with your people, Lord. And for, Lord, those of us who've lost that passion for you, for your word, for your people, that is the local church, I pray that you would restore it. I pray that we would be on the right path, that our heart would be set on the highway to Zion, that the right priorities would be where they need to be. And in doing so, Lord, to remember, 
to just be encouraged to know if that's where we're at, Lord, we're at the right place, even if it's not where and when we want to be, and we can be encouraged by that. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your provision. We pray this in your name, amen.